Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Bless the Broken Road, a chart-topping single and Grammy-winning country song of the year written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Jeff Hanna. The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band co-founder will join us in just a bit to talk about his multifaceted career. But first, we dive into what my co-host has been up to recently as a songwriter. Part one. So before we uh, jump into this interview with the legendary Jeff Hanna today, um, I want to uh, turn the microphone to you, as it were. I'm going to uh, switch the... uh, I'm putting you in the hot seat today, Mr. Duncan. You are going in the hot seat. We... um, you know, when we're not being Beavis and Butthead on this show, <laughs> we're interviewing songwriters. Uh, Wayne and Garth, I thought. Yeah, you know, whichever one. Wayne and Garth is a little more highbrow than Beavis yeah, and Butthead. Barely. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we like to talk to songwriters about their uh, success and about stories behind their songs and that kind of thing. And I would be remiss to not acknowledge that you co-wrote uh, four songs on an album that was just sitting at number three on the billboard hot 200, meaning it was the third best selling album in the nation. Crazy. Um, and the artist is Lauren Daigle. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a good bit of media attention in like Rolling Stone, Forbes, Billboard, because Lauren Daigle is a Christian artist. And you don't typically see Christian records like coming in with bigger sales than like Ariana Grande right. or sitting only behind Eminem and Paul McCartney oh, on the album sales. Yeah. So yeah. this record is like it really has become a sensation. Um, and here I get to share a, you get a podcast yeah. <laughs> with a with a dude that has written for the songs with Lauren as, as well as others uh, on this record, and so I just got to say, uh, man, how did how did this come about? This is this yeah. is great. This is great I, news. I got to tell you, man, when when you say those names, Eminem and Paul McCartney, and you know you're talking about sitting in that company on the sales chart, I almost have to pinch myself. I mean, I saw it myself, you know, <laughs> right? But but to hear you say it, yeah, you know. Uh, Lauren is a friend, um, right. and her producer, Paul Mabry, is a friend of mine, and, and I got connected with her back when she was just kind of starting out, and I was kind of kind of starting out at the same time, so had the opportunity to write for her first album. I thought you were still starting out. I am still starting out. I'm <laughs> always starting out. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, after that first album, then, then um, had a, a Christmas song with her called Light of the World. Um, and which that did that was pretty big on the itunes uh yeah chart if i remember right yeah especially as as far as you know new christmas songs go right. it was it was well received and um i was just super stoked to be invited back to the process of writing right, for right. this this next album um, i don't know a lot of people that you know on a on a personal level we've known each other a long time and like when it comes to to parties or social engagements people don't tend to invite you back no um because no, you'll you'll, get one. you'll break a piece of furniture yeah. or you or know photos that show up online something right right <laughs> Um, this time I, I, my reputation slipped through the cracks and somehow I was was invited back. You got invited back. That's great, man. You overcame. (laughs) Um, you know, and, and I knew that there would be attention on this next album because the first one had done very well, um, went platinum, which is, you know, unique in this day and age. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I was floored to see the reaction and, and how well it did when it first came out of the gate. Um, I have to tell you the experience of, of working with her and of working on this record, um, just really like rewarding artistically. I mean, she's such a great artist, great singer and great writer. Um, Paul Mabry, her producer, and Jason Ingram, who's also a writer producer on the project. I mean, it was like I was surrounded with so much talent, right? Um, that I, I felt like you know I just could it couldn't help but be a great experience. Yeah, and I gotta admit, I'm gonna show my own uh, bias here, but I don't listen to a lot of of Christian music, um, and it's so your soul is dark. But right, uh, right. You know. right. I've uh, I'm one of the forgotten ones. 
Um, but I think, you know, so I, I don't feel super qualified to give a lot of commentary on Christian music because frankly, I'm not like as up on it as I probably ought to be. But I will say that um, the first track on this album, Still Rolling Stones, which is one of the ones that, that you wrote with these guys, you played me that before the record came out and it just kind of grabbed me by the throat. It was like, wow, yeah. this this is this girl is special like she's got a, a, a killer voice the production was amazing the strings and stuff on this album it's are crazy. are just great um and it's just refreshing to um to see this christian record kind of making an impact beyond the um the standard demographic so yeah. to speak and and i think that's because people are just resonating with these songs and and this voice and the production in in a in a very genuine way. I mean, it's, it's like the cream rises to the surface, you know, the good stuff, yeah. um, really finds an audience. So congratulations, uh, to you for after having been associated with this second rate podcast for so long <laughs> to have now be associated with something so top notch. Yeah. I'm impressed. You've, you've gotten above your raisin. Well, I, I can only hope that, that the glow of this record somehow extends to this podcast and, <laughs> and, and sheds light on, on our labors here. Right. You know. I do want to tell our listeners, uh, don't do it right now because you need to listen to this Jeff Hanna conversation first. But once you're done with that, you need to go listen to this record called Look Up Child. And uh, instead of listening to it in sequence, I think you need to listen to Still Rolling Stones and uh, This Girl and Rebel Heart and Inevitable first. Because those are the yep. four that my my man Paul Duncan here uh, is a is a writer on, but all the rest of the tracks are fantastic too. So then you can listen to those afterwards. Those will be like bonuses. But uh, really great record. I'm super happy for you. Also a little bit jealous. Hate you a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I think it's awesome, man. Well, thank you. Part two. Jeff Hanna is a founding member of the pioneering country rock and American roots music institution, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. As a vocalist and multi-instrumentalist with the group, Jeff has found success with songs such as Buy For Me The Rain, Mr. Bojangles, House at Pooh Corner, An American Dream, and the number one country singles Long Hard Road, Modern Day Romance, and Fishing In The Dark. As a songwriter, Jeff has written or co-written many of the Dirt Band favorites, including Bayou Jubilee, Make A Little Magic, Fire In The Sky, Face On The Cutting Room Floor, Partners, Brothers, and Friends, Baby's Got A Hold On Me, I've Been Looking, and Down That Road Tonight. Hannah has found songwriting success outside the band with songs such as High on Love, which was a top 20 country hit for Patti Loveless, and Bless the Broken Road, which Rascal Flatts took to the top of the country chart in 2005. The latter earned Jeff a Grammy nomination for Song of the Year and a Grammy win for Best Country Song. The CMA Album of the Year honoree and four-time Grammy winner saw his band's legendary Will the Circle Be Unbroken album inducted into the Library of Congress's National Recording Archive and the Grammy Hall of Fame. He continues to tour with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and has been a consistent presence in the group for more than 50 years. Jeff, welcome to Songcraft. Nice to be here talking to you guys. You actually moved with your family to uh, Long Beach, California, when you were in your early teen years. But you were born in Detroit, which is, you know, among America's great music cities. And I'm curious to hear about some of your earliest musical influences that you absorbed as a kid when you were still in Michigan before coming out to the West Coast. Well, really, to be fair, I was eight years old when we moved (laughs) from Michigan. We actually moved from Michigan to, uh, to Arizona, and I was in Phoenix for about five years in the 50s, which was a great time to be in Phoenix. Yeah. But I had an older brother. My older brother, Mike, uh, he was about five years older than me, so he was just a teenager when we moved to Phoenix, and, and rock and roll was kind of in its, not quite its infancy, but certainly the early days of rock and roll. And through Mike's, uh, you know, he would he'd spin his records around the house, and I heard a lot of Chuck Berry and Fats Domino, and you know, Bill Haley and the Comets, the Everly Brothers. Immediately, beca- immediately became a, a huge fan of the Everlys. Yeah. Um, you know, and stuff like uh, Dwayne Eddy, who was actually Dwayne was a a local Phoenix boy at that point. Sure. Um, there was always music playing in our house, and when I was a little guy, I remember listening to. You know, uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. My folks had really good taste in music. Mm. So, wow. uh, so we lived there for about five years, and then moved up to uh, Colorado for a couple of years. And then the summer, the summer after ninth grade, 
my dad got a job working for North American Aircraft, uh, and that's that's how we ended up in Long Beach. And, you know, I, I believe the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band began to come together in the mid-60s while you were still in your teens, but I didn't realize until very recently that the group included Jackson Brown in the early days. And yeah. since we love talking about songwriters here, yeah, I'd be curious to kind of hear, did, did you sort of have a window into his early development as a songwriter in those, in those early days? Absolutely, uh, because uh, Jackson was one of the first two or three songwriters I ever met in my life. I mean, my younger brother Dave was a songwriter. So he, you know, in, in those days it was like, you made up a song. Hey, Dave just made a song up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, me and my buddy Bruce Kunkel, who was found, one of the founding members of the Dirt Band, we were actually at a, a choir camp <laughs> in the summer of, I, I think it was the summer of our maybe junior year in high school. Hmm. And, uh, and one of the camp counselors was this guy named Steve Noonan. Well, Steve, you know, we're like sitting around the campfire, and he's got a guitar, and we thought, man, that's really cool. He plays a guitar, and, and he sang some stuff that he said he wrote, and we were like super impressed. You know, that's your song, wow, cool. Right. He says, yeah, you like, he says, you got to meet my buddy Jackson. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so <laughs> when I met Jackson, Jackson was 15 years old when I met him. Wow. And he'd already written some really really deep stuff i mean you know so got to really got to know jackson way back i mean he's he's about a, i think he's around a year younger than i am and uh we all hung out at a club in in orange california uh called the paradox right and it was jackson and, and steve noonan and there was a great singer named tim buckley uh wow. who was actually jeff buckley's yeah. dad you yeah know? sure um a, a great singer and songwriter in his own right and the three of those guys, they called them the Orange County Three because it was like everybody wondered when, who was going to get their first record deal because they were so good. <laughs> yeah. But Jackson, Jackson was among you know the three guys, and when the Dirt Band first got started, we were a jug band because we were all just kind of like, well, what are we going to do? We all play guitar. What? Do we, <laughs> nobody played drums. Right. Nobody played bass. Uh, so we started playing these little open mics you know, hootenanny nights at the at the Paradox. And after a couple of those, Jackson saw us play, and he said, man, can I be in your band? And we were like, sure, come hmm. on, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> he, play, he played the guitar and the washed-up bass and uh, the kazoo, and he stuck around. We, we gigged, we, we opened for the Love and Spoonful and some other, so the Sir Douglas Quintet. I think we probably played, I think Jackson probably played in the band for maybe three or four months. Hmm. Wow. In '66, yeah, wow. I love that you had Jackson Brown on kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And where he belongs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Right, that's great. Um, well, Jackson was replaced by a longtime Dirt Band member, John McEwen, uh, prior to the release of your self-titled debut album in 1967, and you guys fell just shy of the Billboard Top 40 with your single "Buy For Me the Rain." Back Me the Rain was written by Steve Noonan, uh, the camp counselor and great singer-songwriter from the Paradox. Steve, he, Steve co-wrote Back Me the Rain with a guy named Greg Copeland. So right. there we go. Kept it, kept it in the family more or less. <laughs> right. <laughs> How would you um, kind of describe your your songwriting in that period? Obviously, it wasn't as frequent as it would be as it would be later. How were you kind of developing as a songwriter in those early days? I was really listening. To be fair, I was much more about playing the guitar and singing than I was about writing songs because, you know, I knew guys like my brother Dave and and, uh, and Steve Noonan and Greg Copeland and Jackson. And it was like, well, Jackson had this wealth of material. I think we recorded, you'd have to go back and count them, but I think we did like more than a half a dozen of his songs in the first couple of records, right. you know. Um, we were the first band to actually record these days. Right. Um, so, uh, and it was kind of like, let Jackson do it. <laughs> He's got this down. Right. Why would I write? Plus, it, plus, to be fair, it was pretty intimidating too because hmm. it was so good. Hmm. It was like, well, why bother if you can't write a great song? <laughs> so, uh, the guy that really got me kick-started as a writer was a guy named Chris Darrow, 
who hmm. joined our band uh, on the third album, Rare Junk. Yeah. And Chris and I started writing together. Um, I think we had one song on the on the album called Alive, which was our last drug band record. Sure. But he he and I got. He said, "Man, it's not that hard, you know. Just quit being intimidated by the process." He'd already written some great songs. Yeah. And uh, the Dirt Band took an extended break at the end of uh, at the end of 1968 for about seven eight months into the middle of '69. Right. And uh, Chris and I started a band with a guy named, with two guys, a guy named John Ware on drums and John London on bass. And John wrote songs as well. So Chris and I and John Ware sat around and, you know, it was kind of like a, every day, let's try to write a song. So that got me going. Yeah. Chris had a big role in encouraging me to be a songwriter. And now that, that group was uh, called the Corvettes, right? Yeah, it was the Corvettes, yeah. We were also Linda Ronstadt's backup band, which was really cool. Yeah, not, not a bad gig. <laughs> and, you know, just singing with Linda every night, the, the education, because at that point also, we kind of made the transition from, uh, you know, wanting to play jug band music to wanting to play, this, you know, brand new country rock, mm. you know, and specifically California country rock, which was kind of its own thing. Yeah. with the Burrito Brothers and yeah. and, the, and the first uh, music from Big Pink by the band was a big influence on mm, it sure. well. um, so that that was the Corvettes that was our thing you know Michael Michael Nesmith from the Monkees produced uh, Four Sides on us we were hmm. going to do an album but we just kind of that, that kind of fizzled out right. but working with Michael was great yeah. and another great songwriter I mm. might add well the real breakthrough for the reunited Nitty Gritty Dirt Band was the album Uncle Charlie and His Dog Teddy from 1970 and and that kind of brought together this this new direction that you're talking about and you know the the record yielded several hits um Mike Nesmith's Some of Shelley's Blues uh, the first recording of Kenny Loggins' song House at Pooh Corner and then your first top 10 single as a band Mr. Bojangles which of course was written by Jerry Jeff Walker but we also see um a Jeff Hanna original on that album called The Cure I thought I'd give my love to anyone today but when it came to you one thing was for sure but I know your little games and I don't want to play it's like taking sick when nobody knows the cure oh that was ex-girlfriend (laughs) 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 always a good inspiration Um, (laughs) you know and and it was a tune actually that that uh i had worked up with when when i was playing in the corvettes and you know we really kind of i kind of brought that one fully formed into the dirt band when you know when we got together in uh in the summer of 69 started working on material for uh, the Uncle Charlie record. I don't know what the, the inspiration musically was, but it had that, certainly had that feel we were looking for. You sure. know? Again, back to sort of being inspired by the Buffalo Springfield and, and what the birds were doing. Uh, and John McEwen played a really cool, like, twin banjo part on that record, which right. I thought was very cool. Yeah. Jimmy Ibbotson on a lead guitar. Uh, yeah, that was fun. I like that tune. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Um, you know, thinking about a, a song like, you know, Mr. Bojangles, which kind of, you guys cutting that kind of brought, you know, Jerry Jeff Walker to the to the attention of the, the wider world. And, of course, he's, you know, one of those Texas, uh, you know, songwriting legends. But um, how did you guys um, actually wound up getting a, getting a hold of that song? You know, that song found us as much as us finding it. We finished, we finished rehearsal one night, and I was driving home and heard essentially was the tail end, maybe the last verse and chorus of Mr. Bojangles on the radio. Huh. Uh, I had no idea who it was. I wasn't even sure what the song was called, except for it really yeah. moved me. I was really, uh, you know, kind of got a big lump in my throat. I thought, what a great story, and what a beautiful melody. And I, I came into the to rehearsal the next day, really stoked about this tune. And uh, Jimmy Ibbotson, who was in our band back then, for actually for quite a long time, right. uh, Ibby says, I know that song. <laughs> and he runs out to the parking lot and pops the, the trunk on his old Dodge Dart that he drove out from Indiana when he came to California. And like under the spare tire, there's this 45 of Mr. Bojangles by Jerry Jeff. Huh. Hmm. So we, uh, 
pop that thing on, and Ibby started transcribing the lyrics. He actually got a couple of lines wrong. But we we learned it, worked it up, and thought, well, man, this is this song is is really a work of art. You know, it's like a four minute waltz, not your typical radio fare. We didn't think we, in our in our wildest dreams, we figured that Bojangles was really too good to get on the radio. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we figured great classic, classy album c- cut. You know. Right. And uh, we put some of Shelley's blues out as our first single. And it was on the charts, but it was kind of struggling. Uh, the station in Shreveport, Louisiana, started playing Bojangles as an album cut late at night. Hmm. And the phone started ringing, you know. People are calling up requesting the tune. So then they did one of those, like, smash or trash things. Where, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, that kind of wore the records right. And, and so we get this phone call, like, a couple weeks later from our record company saying, we're pulling some of Shelley's Blues. I want to put Mr. Bojangles out. Huh? And we were like, oh, no, not Bojangles. It's so, <laughs> nobody's going to play It's so good that nobody's going to play it. <laughs> well, we, were, we ate those words, and I'm so grateful, by the way. You know, my, like my wife likes to say, I have my elbow on the pulse of America. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, Don't ask me for advice. <laughs> in 1972... Um, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band recorded the legendary album Will the Circle Be Unbroken um, featuring a who's who of country legends like Roy Acuff, Earl Scruggs, Merle Travis, Doc Watson, Mother Maybelle Carter, Vassar Clements, and, and others. You know, obviously the songs on that record were country standards and traditional folk stuff. You know, and probably nobody knows a great song better than a songwriter. So you as a band of songwriters, how did you go about selecting you know, the material for that project? We wanted to, uh, like when we recorded with Jimmy Martin, we were doing a lot of stuff that Jimmy had previously recorded years, you know, prior mm-hmm. to '71. Uh, Maybelle Carter came in, and we did, you know, some Carter, a lot of Carter family stuff. Thinking tonight in my blue eyes, uh, keep on the sunny side. Of course, will the circle be unbroken? Wildwood flower. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've learned, um, and, and I think it started with Linda. Because Linda Ronstadt is one of the great song finders sure. uh, in you know in the history of music, I think, and I think it's important um, as it, as important as it is to have your own voice. I mean, I think songwriting is a, is a fantastic thing, and and I think it's key for self expression right. in what we do. But uh, I think having your ear open for stuff that sounds like you wrote it is also mm-hmm. important. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, and the ability and, and the ability to kind of dive in and make a song your own, I think, is a a, a real gift. Sure. So we've always kind of been we've always been that's kind of informed what the Dirt Band's done for, from the get go. Well, there's a song you wrote on the 1975 Symphonian Dream album called Bayou Jubilee that's a bit more rocking than than you know what you guys had had been doing just before that. It wasn't a single, but it was a song that you resurrected on Will the Circle Be Unbroken 2 album in 1989, and it has kind of remained a, a staple of your live shows, um, you know, yeah, even when some of your bigger charting singles haven't stayed in the set list. Um, talk about that song in particular and, and, and why that one's special to you. When we got into, one of the things I think that set our band apart, when we were talking about country rock earlier, you know, a lot of the bands like Poco and the Burrito Brothers were sort of the steel guitar-driven mm-hmm. combos. Yeah. Uh, and Which is great. I love steel guitar. But we didn't have a steel guitar player. But what we did have was John McEwen, who played the fiddle and, you know, the banjo and the mandolin. Yeah. Uh, Les Thompson played mandolin as well. You know, and we threw in some accordion. But the accordion and the fiddle together kind of equaled a really good mix for Cajun music. Which we are huge fans of. Yeah, we all love, we all love Doug Kershaw, right. you know, and and, uh, and and some of the bluesier stuff like Clifton Chenier. Uh, so we started doing this coaches stuff, you know, good Glambalaya in, in that fashion became sort of a big rave up that we could start off with a guitar solo and then push it into overdrive with a fiddle solo at the right. end. Right. Yeah. Dig, diggy Liggy Low, which was another Kershaw thing. 
the Battle of New Orleans. You know, they were great vehicles. Sure. And we, we kind of needed another song, so I just wrote one. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so, so I took all these influences. Just made one up? I mean, I did, and, and it's funny, there was an inspiration for that. I, my, my wife at the time and I had gone to see uh, Loggins and Messina in Denver. Mm. They were playing a big, you know, they were riding high on uh, their first couple of records. What a great band, I might add. Yeah. Um, and they had a song called Listen to a Country Song. And I and I, there was something about that that just Al Garth played a great fill solo on that, and I thought I don't know. I just got I went home, and that thing just kind of popped out. Um, well, in 1978, the group officially changed its name to simply the Dirt Band and closed out the decade with a pair of albums that included seven of your original songs between the two projects. And those records had more of kind of a pop and rock influence, but they also featured you stepping into the producer role for the first time. Um, when you're in a band with multiple songwriters and you have that additional producer responsibility, how do you kind of navigate those relationships and sensitivities when it comes to selecting material for the album? Uh, well, you know, yeah, that is that could be a challenge. It wasn't in that case because we were at that point we were all writing in 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 the early '80s. Uh, Bill McEwen had sort of retired from the producing the band. Uh, he he'd taken that hat off. He also managed and produced Steve Martin. And when Steve's career took off, Bill Cunnell was like gone, basically. Huh, yeah. And he sat, he sat me down one day and said, man, you're really good at this. Why don't you just try to produce the band? And mm. I was like, well, you know, let's talk to the band about it first. And they seemed okay with it. So, uh, you know, we just started writing songs. We did, you know, uh, again, we were still doing covers. Um, then Bob Carpenter started, uh, Bob was playing in a band that, that Bill McEwen managed as well, called Starwood. And they had kind of disintegrated. Uh, and then Bob went off and played with this band called Player. You know, Baby Come Back? I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Or not. Yeah. So Bob played keyboards with them for a while. But, in it, you know, he got off the road and he said, man, let's try to write some songs. So he and I and our bass player at the time, Richard Hathaway, kind of, uh, you know, I had this little funky house in Evergreen, Colorado, and we kind of, you know, sat around there for a week or two at a time trying to write songs. And right. we came up with Make a Little Magic. That was the first song the three of us wrote together. Um, and, you know, that was a good, actually, that was a good groove for all of us. So three of us wrote together. Jimmy Fadden joined in. Jimmy wrote by himself as well. Uh, John essentially was still writing instrumentals. Um, so that was kind of... Uh, you know, that was kind of the process, you know. Hmm. Tried not to hip check the other guys, <laughs> again, you know. Uh, you know, but I think, I've, I think I've always navigated that pretty well. Yeah, um, yeah. But that is a good, that's a tough one, you know. Well, you, you, you uh, mentioned uh, Make a Little Magic, which which was actually, I believe, the first Jeff Hanna song that was actually uh, ever released as a as a Dirt Band single, and went to number 25 on the Billboard pop chart in, in 1980, and, and you know, was a, was a successful song for you guys. I don't need the same excuses All this talk is really useless You run for cover Every time I'm close to you Don't want to hear about the others Something here we should discover Let's make a little magic for the night is through You know, that was kind of that, that period right before you guys kind of captured that commercial... Um, country success, you know, sort of, I almost think of that as, as sort of the, the, a whole separate era in a way um, for the band. Um, was there a sense in that time of, of feeling a, a, a pull between genres? Like, well, are we a country band? Are we a rock band? Or are we yeah. just kind of focused on, Hey, we're, we're doing what we do and we're not going to worry about categories. Well, there was a little of all of that, you know, uh, I think what what happened towards the end of the seventies, the the whole sort of country rock thing became this this influence of you know what we all kind of laughingly call yacht rock now. <laughs> right. um, you know that kind of it was kind of in the ether. You know, 
there were bands like Steely Dan making such a lot of noise, and the Doobies featuring Michael McDonald now. It, it, there was a lot of there were a lot of sort of paradigm shifts taking place in the world of pop music. A lot of bands that were maybe twangier in our case or harder edged, like the Doobies, were now kind of you know experimenting with this kind of smoother whatever yeah. you know. Yeah. The kind of Pablo Cruz era. You know? <laughs> and and I don't know if it was just a, it wasn't pure pressure. It was just kind of like, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of fun. It was just something different. It wasn't so much that we didn't like bluegrass anymore or that we didn't, you know, love the stuff like Bojangles. Well, we continued to play all that music. We yeah. didn't stop playing that. We just sort of branched out into some other stuff. Mm. Sure. Um, and But one thing that we did take notice of, American Dream charted on the country charts hmm. for no with no promotion on our part it just huh. happened yeah uh and make a little magic ditto that that made the country charts as well right so uh all of a sudden it's like hey you know <laughs> <laughs> we're a country <laughs> we, we found ourselves we well we played on a we, we came to nashville and did this thing called country comes home which was a big special that cbs filmed um and we did make a little magic on that show you know, I remember meeting uh, Randy Owen from Alabama when we did the show that night. And I heard them play. I wasn't really familiar with their music at the time. And I was like, dang, this sounds a lot like what we do. <laughs> right. And these guys, are, these guys are killing it in country music. Whereas pop music was so fickle. We came to Nashville with the intent of, like, checking it out. Uh, we got with a great record producer named Norbert Putnam. So we came to Norbert's house. Uh, he was... He, Owned an old, he owned this old house in Franklin called the Bennett House and had a great studio out there. So we cut an album called Let's Go with Norbert, and that had uh, Dance Little Jean, which became our first bona fide country right. hit for us. And Jimmy Ibbotson, who, who was, he and I were kind of essentially the co-lead singers right. uh, of our band for a long time. And he was a, writer, a songwriting partner of mine as well. So that was great. It was great for Ibby. It was great for the band. You know, the self-penned tune and a great, really cool story. Right. And that was it. I mean, Nashville did not let a lot of folks from the rock side of the dial into the community. Right, right. So we were fortunate. You know, the Dance Little Jean single was kind of the the breakthrough, and that ushered in a, a string of, of like 15 or more consecutive singles that you guys released that hit the country top 10 over the next several years. And we're going to we're going to touch on a, a few of those. But there's actually one of your songs I want to ask you about from uh, 1984's uh, Plain Dirt Fashion album that was not a single based on the cutting room floor, which um, you wrote with Jimmy Ibbotson and, and Steve Goodman. She's Going back to our relationship with with, with Steve Goodman, um, Stevie was a pal of ours back in the early 70s. We, we met Steve and John Prine at the same time. They were both still living in Chicago. Right. And uh, a, a friend of ours took us to this little club down in Old Town, Chicago, and heard those guys play. And, you know, we ended up touring a bunch with both uh, John and Steve. In the early 80s, um, we were looking for tunes, you know, again, same same deal. We were always we were always cutting outside material, but now you know we we're feeling a lot more confident about our songs as well. Right. So uh, we went to California, Seal Beach, and spent a few days with him writing. It was it was such a gas. I mean, this guy yeah. was a master songwriter and a great hang. I mean, really fun. Right. Fun. You know, lived life to its fullest. You know, hmm. he was fighting. He was battling leukemia. But he battled it for like a decade. He was hmm. a tough guy. Wow. We go we go play racquetball. The three of us cutthroat, you know. <laughs> and he he always killed us, wow. <laughs> you know. And this guy this guy's got like a chemo pump in his arm, and he's Jeez. still killing it, you know. I mean, he was he was something else. But yeah. what a great spirit, funny, super funny guy. So uh, he had this idea for face on the cutting room floor, and we just jumped on it. I mean, it was like I think it took us about two hours to write yeah. that. Wow. But that's one of my that's one of my proudest moments as a writer. 
A, mm-hmm. Getting You Right. Uh, it was one of the first songs I wrote with Jimmy Iveson. We'd written a couple prior to that, but I think that kind of really kick-started our writing partnership as well. So in 1985, uh, you landed your first country top ten as a songwriter um, when the title track of the Partners, Brothers, and Friends album hit number six on the, the Billboard chart. In 1986, you guys released the single Fire in the Sky, which you wrote with Bob Carpenter. There's a fire in the sky It's like the light in your eyes Thinking of you And I won't give up till you're in my arms Never give up till what's lost is found Won't give up on your sweet, sweet love again And what's funny is that you actually had released that exact same recording in 1981 um, but then when it came out five years later, it became a top 10 country hit. And it, it makes me sort of just think about, as a songwriter, the, the role that luck and timing you know, play into success just as much as craft. Yep, luck, timing, and, and leverage, you know, mm-hmm. because i got to point this out as well. Uh, Kenny Loggins did all the background vocals on that. Too. Oh, wow. So Kenny was kind of returning a favor from the Uncle Charlie days. Yeah when we were the first band, because we recorded, I think, four or five of his tunes on Uncle Charlie. Uh, and he, you know, he, he cites that record as kind of his big break right. you know, as a writer. So that was really fun, but we put it out as a single and didn't really make any noise. But again, we're a pop band at this point, right? Yeah. So we, we did this uh, compilation record called 20 Years Old in 1986, Right. And we released it. We released this great uh, Donnie Lowry, Don Schlitz tune called "Stand a Little Rain." And then the record company wanted a follow up, and we were like, "Well, we." So we played them without cluing them into the fact that we'd released it before. Yeah. We played them "Fire in the Sky," and they were like, "Wow, that sounds like a hit. You guys are in a groove. Radio will play that." <laughs> so they tested it. You know, sent sent it out to a couple stations. They were like, "Yeah, that's cool." So. <laughs> We put Fire in the Sky out again. We didn't change anything. There wasn't like a quote-unquote country mix. Right. We put the huh. exact record out there <laughs> right. that we did in 81, and it became a top 10 single. <laughs> so, so again, you know, it kind of depends on, you know, some, some days your fastball's really working, and right. that was kind of that era, you know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> we're, but I'm grateful for that because I'm proud of that song. Bob and I wrote that tune, and I, that's that's one of my favorite songs I've ever had a hand in writing as well. Well, you know, the late 1980s were a real songwriting hot streak for you. The Dirt Band hit number two on the Billboard country chart with your song Baby's Got a Hold On Me from the Hold On album. Then the Working Band album yielded two more hits, I've Been Looking, which also went to number two, and Down That Road Tonight, which was a top ten hit. Um, the first of those songs was written with Josh Leo and your bandmate Bob Carpenter, the second with bandmate Jibby Ibbotson, and the third with two non-bandmates, Josh Leo and Wendy Waldman. In what ways did different collaborators kind of affect your approach to the songwriting process? Well, I think it's always fun when you're writing with your friends, you know? Mm. Uh, you know, you're just laughing and eating lunch. Yeah, uh, exactly. But in the case, Sounds yeah, like our podcast. Case, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's, you have fun. Fun is important. When you like, we're talking about writing songs outside of the band, outside of writing with my bandmates like Jimmy Ibbotson or Bob Carpenter or Jimmy Fadden. Um, and I collabor- collaborated with all those guys, of course. Uh, Bob Carpenter and I were hanging out in Nashville when we were working with Paul Worley and Marshall Morgan, working on one of our records. And uh, we ran into Josh Leo. I had met Josh years earlier. He was playing guitar for Jimmy Buffett. And he had just moved to Nashville. And he had this start on a tune, which became Baby's Got a Hold on Me. So he and I and Bob, you know, went up to his apartment late one night and started banging away on the guitars and, you know, finished that really quickly. As it, so we set that one aside, and we ended up switching producers. Paul, we, 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 we had finished sort of our, our recording relationship with Paul and Marshall. Right. And, and Josh threw his, his hat in the ring as a producer. We ended up recording... Baby's got a hold on me with Josh.
Yeah, that was fun. It was fun writing with Josh. You know, later on, uh, writing with uh, with Wendy and Josh together was really fun because Josh had produced Fishing in the Dark and Wendy had co-written it with Jim Photoglow. Hmm. So that was really fun as well. And I'd known I'd known Wendy since when she was a teenager. She was our opening act. I'm, we toured a bunch together in the seventies. Oh yeah, uh, so she was great. We were all. We, yeah, well, she was in Brindle exactly with with uh, Kenny Edwards and Andrew Gold, yeah, and and Carla Bonoff. That was a great band. Your uh, 1992 album "Not Fade Away" featured two songs written with Matresa Berg, um, "Don't Underestimate yep. Love" and and "Little Angel." And for those who don't know, Matresa written hits like "Strawberry Wine," "Wrong Side of Memphis," "You and Tequila," and and we could spend the rest of the show listing her hits. But she also became your wife in 1993. And though you guys yep. are both very successful songwriters, you're not really known as songwriting collaborators in the same way as like uh you know felice and boodlo bryant or barry mann and cynthia right. Weil. um how does your relationship as husband and wife kind of inform your relationship as writers or or vice versa well you know it's interesting when when matresa and i got together i'd known her uh for a couple of years and a couple of our friends tried to kind of met, you know, sort of became matchmakers, you know. <laughs> yeah. And we really kind of, we weren't really that fond of each other. <laughs> 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 Un- un- until um, this guy that was producing the record for us named Chuck Howard said, you know, you got to get with Matrice Berg and write a song. She's got it. You know, she's so good. And she's, you know, bringing a little bit of a female point of view into your writing would be, you know, it would be a good thing. And I thought, well, okay, let me... uh call her up so i called her up and she said she's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we made it lunch it was like right super safe there was no <laughs> there was no sort of there was nobody hitting on anybody right, right. You know? <laughs> and uh and we we became pals and we started writing songs we wrote i think uh, don't i think don't underestimate love is the first song we wrote together hmm. and i love that song actually i mean and working with matrice it was it was just, it was it was great, you know, and that relationship over time ended up becoming a relationship. And yeah. We didn't start out that way. We just started out riding together. Hmm. After we got together, you know, and, and of course after we got married, we, we continued to write, but it got to be more like, number one is I was touring all the time. Yeah. And, and, she, and she had a career as well as an artist. And so when we were around each other, we just didn't want to work. Yeah, it was like, right. let's just hang out. Let's, you know, this is kind of like, this, this is kind of, you know, digging into our quality time. So mm-hmm. the writing, the, we set the writing aside. Yeah. A few years later, a few years later, we, we kind of realized, came to the realization that, you know, maybe if we brought a third in or a fourth writer, uh, it would it would take some of the sort of pressure off of like relationships. Stuff. Right, right, right. <laughs> it, it became, and so that, and that's kind of that's kind of where we're at now. You know, I, I want to talk about your songwriting success apart from the band for a moment. Um, in 1998, Patty Loveless scored a top 20 country hit with "High on Love," which you wrote with Costas, and then Rascal Flatts had a massive hit with "Bless the Broken Road" in 2004, which hit number one and it won you a Grammy for Best Country Song. That song was first introduced on the Dirt Band's acoustic album a decade earlier, and it had actually been cut by a few other artists before Rascal Flatts did it. Talk about writing that one, and you know about the ten-year journey that it took from album cut to smash hit. Yeah, that was something. That was a broken road in its own right. You know? <laughs> um, we. Uh, it's funny. I met Marcus Hummin. Um, Marcus's wife Becca Stevens is a really amazing woman who's like one of the. She will. She's a Episcopalian minister hmm. and a an, an amazing humanitarian as well. Matrice and I, uh, when d- we decided to tie the knot, <laughs> she said, "Let's 
maybe Becca would marry us. And so Becca officiated our wedding. And Marcus got up and sang this great song called Only Love, which mm. was a hit for Winona. Matrice right. um, and I went off to and you know, took our honeymoon, and when we got back, uh, Marcus and I decided we could get together and try to write a song. I walked into his house one day, and he said, look, I, you know, we started talking about, you know, the, the circuitous journey that life takes, you know. Right. And, and, you know, like in relationships... You know, a great example was just me and Matresa. We had both been married before, and and yet we felt like we'd finally gotten it right when we got together. Yeah. Mm. And so he, he showed me the chorus to, to Bless the Broken Road, and he had the piano lick, and the, the chorus was like about two-thirds done. I just said, man, not only does that appeal to me as a writer, but it also it's, it's really compelling. I mean, it's such a cool idea. Sure. And so we, uh, in two writing sessions, we finished that. And then he came to me after we'd finished the tune, and he said, you know, I got a friend, a writer named Bobby Boyd, and, and he said, Bobby really kind of got me going in terms of the idea for that song. Yeah. It wasn't specifically called Broken Road, but it was more like a life journey. Yeah. So Bobby's also listed as a writer on the song, but I never met him. So <laughs> we went to the Grammys together. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> I think it was great uh, to acknowledge somebody's contribution to the to a tune in that sense. Yeah, sure. You know? And so we recorded the song with Bob Carpenter singing uh, the vocal on acoustic. Uh, it was a very spare arrangement. I had a little acoustic guitar, piano, harmonica, a little bit of mandolin, I think. And, uh, you know, no drums or bass. It was a very kind of stripped back, stripped down. Uh, recording, and when we turned that record in, the a record company didn't really hear a single, of course. Wow, um, then Marcus did it on his Columbia album that came out maybe a year later. They talked about putting his version out as a single, but that didn't really fly. Right. And uh, we started pitching the song, and uh, we got a lot of a lot of interest. You sure. Know? Everybody from Bette Midler to Faith Hill to oh my gosh, you know. In fact, there was a there was a girl named Melody Crittenden, a great great singer, uh, had a deal with Asylum Records here in Nashville, right? And she re she recorded the tune with Byron Gallimore produced it, and it came out as a single. And it, I don't remember how high it got in the charts. I think in the fifties, maybe. It got up to I think about forty forty two, almost in the top forty. Well, the record company went belly up they hmm. closed hmm. their doors asylum closed their doors right when that song was out so that it just basically killed it we were bummed out by that but so you know some more time goes by and other artists are still putting the song on hold brooks and dunn came really close to cutting the song hmm. um and ronnie you know again i heard this sort of behind the scenes that he wanted bruce hornsby to come in and play piano i thought oh man that would be so cool yeah well they they ended up not cutting it but the same week, Rascal Flatts cut the song. So, and there's a backstory there, which is Marcus had known those guys from the very first record. They had recorded two or three of his songs on the first couple albums. Yeah. And they, they always looked at Broken Road and always passed. But they were always like, oh, man, we love this song, but had to fit this one. So they were doing that album, um, Feels Like Today. And they had put out the first single, which was the title track. And it did okay, but it didn't, by their standards, it wasn't really tearing it up. It was a really good record, but it right. just, for whatever reason, it wasn't, you know, it, I don't think it went to number one, you know, which was kind of their standard. Sure. So they went, they went back in the studio and cut a couple of more songs, and one of them was Broken Road. Hmm. So Marcus and I got the call that, you know, they were mastering that album, and then they went back and did these new tracks. And then we got a call a week later and said, your song's the next single. We're like, whoa. We went from, like, nobody's touching this tune for 10 years right. to, like, you know, here it is, a single by, you know, this band, these guys are huge right now. Right. Know? But that thing, you know, I, I remember hearing that on the radio, going, wow, this is so cool. You know? <laughs> meant, to right. be, meant to be, you know. We didn't intend to write a hit song. That's the thing that I, I think really stays with me is that that was a personal story, a very personal story yeah. for all three of us. And 
people were drawn to that. Yeah, know? sure. I think that I think when you, you know, being genuine, genuine is a word that gets tossed around way too frequently. <laughs> but I think it. But I think people get it when you mean it. You right. Know? Right. Yeah. Well, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band uh, celebrated 50 years in, in 2016, but we haven't seen a studio album from the band since uh, Speed of Life in 2009, but it, it seems that there's kind of a, a fresh wind. Your your son Jamie has recently joined the band, um, as has Ross Holmes, who was previously in Cadillac Sky and has played with Mumford and & Sons and, and the band Chess Boxer. Um, it, it, and Bruce Hornsby as well. And Bruce Hornsby too. Yeah, it it, it seems yeah. like um, it, it seems like there's a there's a whole new era kind of beginning. Um, what's what's next for for the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and for for Jeff Hanna, the songwriter? We haven't been this enthusiastic about recording new music in a very long time, so hmm. it's going to be a few months before we we can get in the studio. But I'm really excited about you know playing with my son is so cool and he's yeah. a super talented guy, great songwriter. I might add. Yeah. Uh, really, really brilliant. He wrote a lot of stuff that uh, with Raul Malo when Jimmy played with the Mavericks for a while as well. Oh, cool. Um, and with the Gary Allen band most recently, you know, and he had a couple of great cuts with Gary, a song that he and John Randall Stewart wrote called um, She's So California, a really cool tune. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm super excited about cutting some stuff with, with Jamie and Ross. And Jim Photoglow, by the way, has been touring with us the last couple of years hmm. so on bass and he's he's brilliant so yeah yeah it just feels really fresh and new for nice. us nice so uh, yeah 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 there will be stuff coming well jeff uh thank you for uh your time today and and for the great music over the years and we look forward to hearing the the new music coming down the the pike in the future and uh this, is, this has been fun all right great talking to you guys Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you in the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters.